You know, one of my favorite um, places in Scripture to just sit and read and ponder is the Old Testament book of Proverbs. There's a great deal of wisdom in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And as we prepare our hearts for worship this morning, let me share just these few words from, from the book of Proverbs. A cheerful heart brings a smile to your face. A sad heart makes it glad to get through the day. Makes it hard to get through the day, not glad. No, that's, a, that's the wrong word. A cheerful heart, I'll start again. A cheerful heart brings a smile to your face. A sad heart makes it hard to get through the day. A miserable heart means a miserable life. A cheerful heart fills the day with song. Isn't that a great piece of wisdom for us? Uh, how would you describe your heart today? A cheerful heart fills the day with song. What a blessing we, uh, we can be to the people around us when we have a cheerful heart. Let's pray together, shall we? Fill us with your joy this day, Father, as your word runs through us, melting our cold hearts and bringing light to the darkness of our souls. Bring to life our faith in Jesus Christ, who reveals to us your will and your way, and may the word that has guided your people in the past find a home in us as we seek to understand and grow in your love, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're starting a new four-week uh, series um, that focuses on the Old Testament prophet Elijah. I really love studying and teaching from the Old Testament stories. I think we discover that um, they are more relevant to today than we ever dream uh, when we get into these Old Testament stories. And I'm happy to be back with you for a few weeks and uh, to be uh, here and sharing worship with you. But today... Uh, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, and if you like history, now you're going you're gonna to like uh, getting some background uh, today on the life and ministry of one of the greatest prophets in all of history. One of the things that I've learned over the years uh, from studying the Bible is that to understand a particular character or a person, sometimes it's important that we go back to their roots and look at the culture of the time or the community where they were raised and try to understand the setting in which the story of their life takes place. My point is this. We can't fully understand people out of the context of their history. So the question is, does a person make history or does their history make the person? The truth is, Probably both. So as we study the Old Testament prophet Elijah over the next few weeks, we're going to try and see this man in the context of the history of his time. For over a hundred years, um, Saul was king of Israel, then followed by David, and then followed by David's son Solomon. All three of those kings had their faults, but it was Solomon who had the fabulous beginning, trained and nurtured by a godly man, and yet he had a terrible finish to his life. You've heard people say, finish strong. 
But Solomon did not finish strong. As he turned away from God, he primarily broke all the principles by which the king of Israel's had to live. And the one that was most devastating was his political marriage to various women from foreign countries. He allowed them to bring in their pagan worship into the nation of Israel. So with a back, that background and context, Solomon dies. And what happens? Well, Israel is divided then into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, where Jerusalem was located. Now, the northern kingdom lasted for about another 200 years. It had 19 different rulers over that period of time, and the Bible says that that every one of them, without exception, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of them. There were 19 straight losers, godless men who ruled over the northern kingdom. Finally, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom existed for about 300 years having a total of 17 different rulers. There were nine of them who were totally godless, while eight of them were God-fearing. Finally, the Babylonians came in around 586 B.C. and destroyed the temple, and that is what we uh, call the Babylonian captivity. When so many of the Jews were taken away from their native land, at least those who were most talented and gifted... Now, we know about 70 years went by, and then along came leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and these men came back and rebuilt a sort of one-horse temple. Nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple, but nevertheless, they rebuilt the temple, and suddenly monotheism, the worship of Jehovah God, was reestablished in the land. Now, it's in this context that we can understand the life of Elijah the Tishbite. As he came on the scene in Israel's history while the kingdom was divided between north and south and being primarily ruled by godless people. We read in the 16th chapter of 1 Kings about the different kings of the northern kingdom and we come upon the name Omri. Now, it says that Omri was worse than all the other kings before him. That's pretty tough language, isn't it? He would really have to be some kind of bad apple to be worse than his predecessors because Israel's history records some really bad dudes during this period of time. So there's this years of immorality, decadence, assassinations, incest, bribery, all kinds of bad stuff going on. You name it, everything under the sun went on. It was a time of demonic worship, time of demonic lifestyles all over Israel in both the northern and southern kingdoms during those years. So anytime you think, boy, things can't get any worse, (laughs) just go back and read this story in scripture and you'll understand that it can get a lot worse. Well, finally onto the scene comes this man by the name of Elijah. Out of the clear blue, we have no introduction to him. All we know is that uh, is what is said in verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishba in Gilead, what do we know about him? First of all, we know his name was Elijah. El 
in short for Elohim, a name for God, and Jah, which is an abbreviation of Jehovah. The I in the middle simply indicates his name is God is Jehovah. Jehovah is my God. That's the interpretation of his name. Now we know too that Elijah was different from all the paganism that ruled and reigned in Israel at this moment in history. He was different by his very name, Elijah. My God is Jehovah. It reminded the Israelites of their roots, of uh, who they were uh, as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David. See, Elijah was a Tishbite. Nobody knows even today where Tishba was. Archaeologists have looked and looked. They know it was in Gilead. They know that Gilead was this wild wilderness kind of place. Anybody who came from Gilead would not have had on Skecher sandals or Pierre Cardin robes. You know, they would have had clothing made of animal skins. They were tough dudes. They came from the backside of nowhere. And you can be sure Elijah was this kind of guy. He had an in-your-face kind of personality. It was going to be God's way or the highway. That was the personality of Elijah. Now, Elijah came on the scene in order to speak to King Ahab, the son of Omri and his wife. King Ahab, who the Bible says was worse than his father, Omri, represented a line of kings that the Bible says were going downhill with every generation. Now, Ahab was married to a woman by the name of, you know who he's married to? Jezebel. Jezebel. And Jezebel was the promoter of the pagan god Baal. She brought in sexual impurity, sexual promiscuity, the worship of the goddesses, all kinds of perversion in the physical and sexual realm, idolatry, the worship of false gods. It all reached new heights under Jezebel and Ahab. You see, we see idolatry in our day. You know, I've never had anybody in all my years of ministry come up to me and say, Hi, Rod, my name is Ted, and I'm an idolater. Now, a lot of people uh, would not recognize it, but we have idolatry in our day. Anything that takes the place of God, anything that has priority in our life and occupies the place that where God should be, that thing or that person becomes an idol. Now, it's interesting to note that Jezebel is the first wife of, uh, 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 to be named of all the king's wives. None of the other wives of the various kings are even mentioned. Isn't that interesting? Only Jezebel. And you may ask, why? Well, because she dominated Ahab. She brought in the worship of Ashtaroth, the mother of Baal, and the worship of the pagan god Baal. And she built shrines and temples and places to exercise all of this mysticism and sexual perversion. And she brought in all of that into the nation of Israel. And, and she was such a strong, dominating woman. She ran the kingdom. Ahab was tough and he was mean, but he was just a figurehead. And as bad as he was... His wife was worse. Now the Bible says that God spoke his word to Elijah. 
Sometimes we have the idea that a prophet of God was this person who was successful and wealthy and had respect of the people. Uh, Not so. Not a single time do we find that in the Bible. The biblical prophet had a very different role. Elijah was an individual that God had picked up out of nowhere and said, you know, I want you to go speak my word to Ahab. Now, this was an incredibly dangerous assignment. During the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, there were over 7,000 followers of Jehovah God hiding in caves. They knew that if Jezebel and Ahab knew uh, anybody who even mentioned the name of Jehovah, they would be dead on arrival. But here is Elijah headed straight for the palace to speak for God. In the course of this story today, we're going to see three phases in God's dealing with Elijah. The first is Elijah speaking for God. Verse 1, now Elijah, who was from Tishba in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. What's he saying? He's saying, Ahab, I'm talking for the God of Israel. Ahab already knows the name Elijah means Jehovah is God. And now Elijah says, as the Lord lives, and he's saying, "I, I have come to talk to you about the living God. Now this is not some idol, this is not some mystical thing, this is the living God. Elijah is proclaiming that God is alive. And that's where we all have to start. Is God alive to each of us personally? Is he somewhere in the distance? Is he somewhere out at the edge of our life? Or is he real? Is he alive? Is he central in our life? If we could just understand that God is omnipresent, we'd be halfway to living a godly life. Because wherever we are, God is omni. He is present. He is alive. And that's where Elijah starts. He says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, basically saying, I'm here as his representative. I stand for him. I'm on his side. I am his instrument at this moment in history. And then he speaks a word of judgment to Ahab, and he says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God that I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Does anybody else but me have trouble understanding that? He said, there will be no dew or rain until I give the word. You see, prophets have a way of cutting to the chase. This is the word of the Lord. So where did Elijah get the authority to make this kind of statement? Well, he knew the Bible. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, we read a situation in which people turned away from the living God. And Deuteronomy 11.16 says, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Their hearts had been deceived, hadn't they? They had turned away from God and they were worshiping Ashtaroth and Baal. But here's the promise from Deuteronomy. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no more rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. What's Elijah saying? He's saying... 
This is where we are right now, folks. You've turned away from God. Ahab, God is going to fulfill his promise. No more rain. No more dew. Let me explain it in a different way. What if someone came on the scene today with a message from God and said, from this moment forward until I give the word, no more oil will come out of the ground in the entire world. Well, we could use our reserves and we could try to hang in there for a while. But I'm going to tell you something quicker than you could imagine. Every city, every nation would shut down. Our homes would shut down. See, we know God's judgment in this case lasted for three and a half years. If we went three and a half years without rain or water, our food supply, our livestock, everything would suffer, wouldn't it? We would be living how people lived maybe back in the early 1800s in the Dust Bowl out west. The Israelites depended on water for their crops and their livelihood, and now there's not going to be any more rain. There's not going to be any more dew. They had no reservoirs. They had no great lakes. The judgment of God fell on them because of their godlessness. How, and here, here we see Elijah speaking for the Lord, and he said, I'm speaking for the God who is alive, and I'm standing here with him. I am his ambassador. I'm his messenger And here's the word of the Lord from the book of the law. You were taught this generations before. Now you see it taking place. But then something strange happens. One moment Elijah is speaking for God, and the next moment we see him hiding with God. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook near where it enters the Jordan River. Now, here is Elijah, who is this nobody from Gilead, who becomes the palace spokesman. And God says to him, Show's over for now, Elijah. Now go and hide. He said, But Lord, I'm a palace guy now. (laughs) I grew up in the boondocks, but I like life here in the palace. Uh, I have spoken for you here I have pronounced your word to the king. Let me go and tell all the people that the judgment of God is upon them, that because of their wickedness and the way they've ruled and reigned and worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth, that the judgment of God is upon them too. Let me go on a crusade all across Israel. Man, I'm the kind of guy who likes the limelight. I like the spotlight. I'm getting accustomed to this. But God said, Elijah... It's not my plan. I want you to go hide by Kareth Brook. Kareth means cut off. We know it was on the other side of the Jordan River, which was kind of a barren area. So Elijah, the palace guy, the big-time important prophet, walks a long way to the other side of the river, through the brush, brambles, up one mountain, down another, in between hills and valleys, and finally... He finds this little place where there's a brook and some grass and he spends about a year there in hiding. I'm wondering if any of you this morning have problems in your life. Anybody dealing with pressures in business or difficulties in your family? How do we handle those? 
Some of us make a list. We look at our alternatives. We try to be proactive and move ahead because it's our nature to do something to keep busy. But sometimes God's plan is go hide. Take a break. Chill out for a while. But we're not very good at doing that, are we? We feel like we're out of, if we're, you know, we, we need to take action. We need to do something. You know, I will tell you that I rarely spend a day without spending at least a few moments by myself. I've learned to do that. I have to do that. And if I don't, I find out very quickly that I'm going to appointments and I'm studying and writing sermons and I'm meeting with people and I'm working on the business of the church and I'm taking care of my family, going here and there, meeting deadlines, doing stuff for God, but running on empty. Anyone feel like that? Ever? Anyone ever feel overwhelmed not knowing what to do next? Sometimes we need to do what Elijah did, and that's go hide, to get alone with God. It's in those quiet places where God reveals himself to us. That's what God instructs us to do. This is where God enriches us. This is the secret to the genuine life. Go and hide, get away from everybody, get away from everything else. Spend some time resting and being renewed. I don't think Elijah wanted to go, but God said, if you're going to be my servant, Elijah, go. By the way, it's interesting that the first part of this chapter, we have Elijah the Tishbite. That is all we know about him. In the last part of the chapter 17 of 1 Kings, he is known as Elijah, the man of God. That is the sort of stuff that's going on in this chapter and we don't easily notice Elijah is in confrontation with the king. And then Elijah is in concealment, hiding at the, at the brook Kareth, cut off. He is alone with the animals and with nature and with the blue sky. And our idea of Kareth, you know, might be that we want to have, um, you know, fast food, something to make life easy for us, eliminate all the rocks, uh, but that's not how it works. Elijah said to, or God said to Elijah, go hide yourself in this kind of barren place. I'll take care of you. So we see Elijah speaking for God. We see Elijah hiding with God. And then we see Elijah learning to depend on God. Listen to verses 4 through 6. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you. For I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped near Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. My guess is it's not the dream of most people to be relaxing beside the pool and someone bring, you know, a brook out in the middle of nowhere and uh, someone being dependent on someone to bring you food and, and, and drink. But here's Elijah, he's relaxing under the blue sky, he's sleeping on the soft grass, he's feeling pretty secure now, you know, because he's in God's will. You've heard me say before that when we're doing what God wants us to do and living the life God wants us to live, we will experience God's blessings. I firmly believe that. So I'm sure that Elijah felt 
God's presence as he was learning to depend on God for his water, for his food. God was renewing him in preparation for even greater things that God would do and ask of him in the future. Do you know what happens to us when we live in the center of God's will? Our life begins to overflow with God's blessings. That which is supernatural becomes natural. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, we read how God sent the people manna each and every day to eat while the Israelites were living in the wilderness. Two million plus people were fed by God every day. Manna was this bread-like substance that was a complete nutritious meal. Now at first they said, oh, this is supernatural, God. You send us this each morning. God is giving us manna so we can eat. It was good. In the days that followed, that manna uh, came day after day, and you know the story, they got tired of it. And then pretty soon they're grumbling, oh, more manna. That which was supernatural had become natural. That which was amazing and miraculous, sometimes in our life, is often taken for granted and becomes commonplace. Well, here is Elijah, he's at the center of God's will. He's been God's spokesman to the king in a very tough situation. God sent him into hiding for his protection, for his growth, for his maturity. He had him, has him by the babbling brook and food every morning and evening. Uh, and then a startling verse, verse 7 says, and it happened that after a while, the brook dried up. <laughs> and we think, hey, what's that all about? What's going on here? Have you ever been just coasting along in your life and everything seems to be going fine and suddenly a valued relationship just dries up? Or you're on top of life one moment and suddenly a business adventure turns cold, hard, boring. The brook dries up. You're in good health and, and uh, you, know, you, you jog every day and you're lifting weights so you're healthy and all of a sudden the brook dries up. You're serving God. You pray and read your Bible every day, and you, and you don't do this and you don't do that, but all of a sudden the brook dries up. What in the world is going on? We like bubbling brooks better, don't we? We're thankful for those babbling brooks in our lives and God's abundant provision when life is going good, but when the brook dries up, we think, what is God's, what's God doing? I don't understand this. The brook dried up. Someone slandered you. Someone hurt you. The brook dried up. You see, we learn more from God and more about ourselves when brooks dry up than we do when the brooks are flowing. We learn to be dependent on God when everything is... Mag- uh, we don't learn to, uh, to be dependent on God when everything's just magnificent in our life, but we learn when you know life becomes starts to come apart at the seams. When the brook dries up, we learn that we have to depend on God. So what's God doing here? God is teaching Elijah what he wants to teach you and me as we walk through our life. And that is that there's absolutely nothing in this world that is nailed down. Do you get that? There is no security in this earthly existence. It often seems like there's nothing we can absolutely depend on. Nothing in this world is nailed down. 
But God was also teaching Elijah, as he will teach us, with babbling brooks and dried up brooks, to set our affection on things above, not on things in this world. And to do that, we have to spend time hiding with God. We have to uh, see the progression here. God has us in training. God has to move us out. He has to shake us up, or we would just sit there and rust or shrivel up or go through the motions, and we'd miss out on a lot in life. Let me tell you a quick story, and just before we end this. In the town of Utah, Alabama, cotton was king for years. Everybody planted cotton. Suddenly the boll weevil came. Have you ever seen a boll weevil? They are a bad looking dude. The boll weevil came and eliminated the cotton crop until the people got desperate. And they said, we're going to be impoverished. Uh, we're going to be in poverty. We're going to just, we're, this, is, this is not working. We can't plant cotton. Finally, one guy said, how about we try to plant peanuts instead? So they planted peanuts and made five times the amount of money they ever made planting cotton. When the boll weevils destroyed all the cotton, they said, my brook is dried up. But they planted peanuts, and the brook began to bubble again, better, greater than ever before. So in Utah, Alabama, they built a monument honoring the boll weevil. And they said if it hadn't been for the boll weevil, they would still be planting cotton. So what is the application of that story in our lives? First, today we talked about idolatry. And really, at the root of who we are as Christ followers is the ultimate question, who or what has priority in our life? Does God have the central place in our life? Or does money, or does job status, or does family, or something else? This, that question is huge. Is there anything in your life that takes the place of where God should be? Secondly, we also talk today about whether God is real and alive and present in our life. Do we have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or have we just been going through the motions of that? If we're alive with the presence of God, we'll be supporting his work in the world. If we're doing what God wants us to do and living the life that God wants us to live, we will experience, as Elijah did, the blessings of God. See, obedience brings blessings. Our obedience brings God's blessing. When we live in the center of God's will, we will begin to understand how God takes what we give him and supernaturally uses it to pour out his blessing. Not only on us, but on other people as well. Our lives overflow with God's blessings. And then third, we talked about how the brook dries up. And we know that what that's like too. In Michigan, we know, that, uh, we know about dried up brooks at certain times of the year. But as it was for Elijah, the, the dried up brook is not the end of his story. It is how God is, it's how Elijah learned to depend on God. And as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, it was the prelude to greater things and greater demonstrations of God's power than Elijah could ever possibly imagine. Here's the final word for today. When your brook dries up, 
God is doing something in your life. It may take a while for us to know that, but God is up to something. He's teaching us that nothing in this life is nailed down. He's teaching us to set our affections on the intangible, on him, on the things that cannot be seen. And he's teaching us that the, the bottom line truth that we all need to get, and that is to be totally dependent on Christ and Christ alone. Thanks be to God.